Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by Kevin Malahai. Kevin has over 17 years of experience in strength and conditioning and personal training with a specialization in tactical populations and combat sport athletes. He currently works with Canadian Forces Morale Welfare Services and Personnel Support Programs. His current role is fitness coordinator at the 3rd Canadian Division Support Base in Edmonton, where he oversees the development and delivery of fitness and performance-related programs provided by Personnel Support Program, Canadian Armed Forces, including unit PT and annual fitness testing. As well as this, Kevin has extra duties, including being the chief official for grappling the Canadian Armed Forces, the co-founder of the National Strength and Conditioning Association's first-ever combat sports special interest group, alongside UFC Performance Institute's Duncan French, and also a committee member of Edmonton's Combative Sports Commission. You're a busy dude, Kevin. Welcome yeah. to the show, bud. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem, mate. I mean, thanks a lot for taking the time to sit down and chat with me, Kevin. I mean, I've, I've heard you on a couple of other podcasts, and you first popped up on my radar just through LinkedIn. I just saw some of the posts you were putting up around the tactical space, dude. And I was just like, right, this is a dude I'd really like to sit down and you know, have a chat with. Yeah, I'm glad that somebody sees it. I feel like... Uh, I kind of use it as my own personal log to keep myself on track. And it's more uh, me journaling what I'm reading at the time, typically. So nice. glad somebody's getting something out of it. Hey, man. Well, it's appreciated over here, dude. Yeah. So obviously, Kev, I give a brief overview there, dude, just uh, regarding like, you know, your, your current role and what you're doing that. But for anyone who's listening who hasn't come across you on LinkedIn or any other podcast, can you just give us a bit of a background of, you know, where you started out in your career and where you're currently at? Yeah, so uh, most of my uh, my strength and conditioning background uh, actually kind of started uh, just by virtue of the fact that I was involved in other sports and things like that. Um, so I actually got my first taste for, for doing any type of strength and conditioning training uh, on the tail end of an injury in high school where I got invited back to work as a, a, a senior in high school uh, with our off-season football group. So I got to like help teach some kids how to squat and stuff like that. I uh, never really, you know, tracked it on my radar or anything like that. Uh, but relatively uh, engaged in in sports and things like that growing up. So it was always a space I was kind of familiar with, maybe not necessarily uh, really uh, read in on. And then uh, went into the military after high school. Uh, I was actually medically separated there. Um, so that ended what I intended on being a lifelong career early. Uh, and so I was kind of left in the uh, space of trying to figure out what I wanted to do instead of that. Um, so I tried lots of different things. Uh, all the while, I was uh, one of the regular things in my life was doing PT. And uh, so the facility that I was training at, there was a, a prior service Marine there as well, a guy named Frank Angelo. And uh, he just kind of tossed it out as a suggestion. Hey, man, you, uh, you're in here a lot. Like, Maybe you should get paid to be here. Uh, and so uh, I actually went through a local certification at the time, uh, NFPA, National Fitness Professionals Association, that was uh, run by a local, I think he was actually a bodybuilder, uh, but he worked with some clinical populations, a stuff guy named Brian Atterbury. And uh, so it was kind of a, a you know weekend certification equivalent, uh, high school diploma really didn't require much. Um, but I started with that, that was in 2005. Uh, and then since then, I've done a slew of things. Um, I've acquired several different certifications over my time. I've spent time in the CrossFit space, um, the strength and conditioning side of the house, 
mostly kind of gravitated towards working with combat sport athletes by uh, just virtue of the fact that I was also in that space training and doing like local competitions while going to school, things like that. And I built a bit of a rapport in the community in Oklahoma City for working with guys that were either fighting professionally uh, or even people that were working in uh, what I consider to be recreational professional uh, fighting sports. So guys that are like weekend warrior jits players and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of evolved further and further. Uh, interestingly enough, through the CrossFit space is actually where I got reintegrated into the military or tactical populations. Um, the first CrossFit gym that I actually trained out of in Oklahoma City was a gym called CrossFit 405. It was located downtown, was opened by uh, two police officers. And so, uh, and one of them also happened to be an officer in the Marine Corps. And so as a result of that, we had a pretty significant population of tactical populations, fire police, EMS and military, uh, cause we were right across the street from the federal building. And, uh, so I started working with a lot of those individuals and, uh, and making, uh, connections on that level as well as, uh, kind of working within the general population, but it, I tended to just more gravitate to those two populations. And that's basically taken me to a place I am now working directly with the military here in Alberta, uh, as well as working within the space of uh, grappling, officiating and uh, the commission. That's, that's awesome, man. That's a pretty diverse uh, skill set you developed working with all those multiple populations, dude. Where, where did your interest in strength conditioning and like the Iron Game come from? Was it just so you had in high school or was it because of being involved in high school sports, you got pushed into a bit more? I would say, you know, in hindsight, I think it was just something that it was, uh, I took very naturally to it. And uh, it was uh, kind of incidental in that I was doing a lot of training stuff uh, kind of on my own. And uh, I, I tend to, when I, when I find something that I really enjoy, I tend to kind of geek out on it. So I was spending a lot of time in the text uh, rolling through podcasts, watching videos, reading magazines, like trying to look for consistencies and truths and things like that within the strength and conditioning world for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just had uh, collectively, as I mentioned, like by being in the community, a lot of the guys that were fighting and stuff were like, hey, man, can we just come work out with you? Um, and that was more how I got into working into the what I would consider to be more like a performance side of the house as opposed to working with general populations, which are, I, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds or or whatever that looks like, right? So, um, and then as I started to work with those individuals, uh, I found that piece of it personally to be much more fulfilling uh, because I was helping somebody train a very specific means to an ends or they had a very specific goal in mind as opposed to just kind of arbitrarily saying, I need to be in better shape. That's interesting, dude. And you were saying, getting involved in, you know, the CrossFit side of things as well brought you back into the tactical space there as well. And you were saying it was was a couple of um, law enforcement officers who'd opened up the, the box and one of the guys within that was a Marine Corps officer as well. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Clayton, a uh, guy named Clayton Sargent. I actually, last time I went back to Oklahoma, I ran into him just randomly uh, in a shop and I talked to him. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, Clayton was one of those guys that uh, the, you know, kind of the joke, floating around is like, if you can solve it with a gun, Clayton's your guy, right? Like, um, but he's super nice switched on guy. Uh, and I actually 
knew him. We talk about full circle stuff. I actually knew him because at the time I was doing jujitsu at uh, Lovato's jujitsu in Oklahoma city. And he was also there. And when he basically came to me, he said, Hey, you have your CrossFit level one certification. Yes, sir. I do. And he was like, good. We're opening up a gym downtown. Can you meet us for coffee or something? And that was really the extent of that conversation. And then it was like, we, I think they opened the following week or two weeks later or something like that. So, um, yeah, I had gotten my level one just is kind of like a one-off. Uh, it was one of those things where I, there's another location called CrossFit OKC. I think it was the first one in the Metro, um, with a guy named Jason Bogue. And I'd gone in and trained a couple of times. I was like, Hey man, are you looking for trainers? He's like, we're kind of a small operation. We're not even at that point yet. He goes, come talk to me in a bit. I went off and trained on my own, uh, for a while. And then, uh, Clayton approached me probably six months later that they were opening up and they were actually people that came out of that gym, classic CrossFit, you know, like sister or satellite uh, yeah. locations of the original. So that's interesting, dude. And from that, then, you know, you're up in Canada at the moment working with the, the forces up there. Is that your first stop off then within the like an embedded tactical environment within the military? Were you stateside as well? Did you do anything military wise before you made the move up to Canada? In to the degree that I am, yes, okay. uh, this would be my first location. When I was in Oklahoma City, uh, there was a the CEO of the 45th um, was a member of our gym. So the 45th is a guard unit or an infantry unit uh, down in uh, Oklahoma City. And uh, so the CEO of that location was actually a member of our facility. I had worked with him a couple of times. So I had done some uh, kind of little like, hey, can you, we have a large, you know, uh, uh, what's the word they even use for that in the guard? I was like, I don't know guard terminology. They had a drill weekend. That's what I'm looking okay. for. Um, so they had a drill weekend. So they had a large exercise. Uh, and he just asked, you know, this is what we have, you know, uh, here's the logistics of our space and our, our equipment. Could you just give us some ideas for some unit PT stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I did some stuff like that with him. And then I actually worked with him directly, uh, in one of his pre-deployments. Um, and, uh, he was actually one of the people that really helped or me, I guess, visualize where I wanted to be in my career, being more working in the tactical space. Um, just by virtue of having some, uh, very like open heart to heart type of conversations with him about like the uh, practicality of, of, you know, like what it was we were doing, how it impacted his potential to be in a, a better space when he had deployed and things like that. And so it was, uh, as I mentioned with the fighting population, like a very specific means to an ends type of thing, how that was fulfilling. That's in a sport, you know, context. And mm -hmm. this was in like a, a very like real potential life or death context. So it was just an elevated version of that same fulfillment that I was getting in the sports world. That's interesting, dude. And I mean, um, obviously making the move up into Canada, like how long have you been there now in your current post? So uh, I've only been in Canada, period, since October of 2018. Okay. Um, this is actually the first, uh, so CFMWS, the PSP organization, is my first and only real job outside of doing a little bit of personal training just to make some money on the side when I first got here. Um, my first real job and I started with them in a different, uh, position was that end of June, 2019. That's interesting, man. So, I mean, 
for obviously the, the times when you've been there, dude, you're you now a fitness coordinator and touched on you, you do some unit PT and you do some annual fitness testing. That's just a brief snapshot. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, you know, the overall job role you're doing up there with regards to the, the base in Edmonton? Yep. Yeah. So I've done a little bit of everything within there's a, there's a greater department that I fit within, mm -hmm. uh, which is the fitness and sports side of things, which includes, uh, we have a sports coordinator that oversees, uh, it, whether it be SISM level uh, sports where they're traveling to different countries, all the way down to like intersection sports where it's just like company versus company playing ball hockey, you know, like, yeah. so they, they oversee most of those things that happen within uh, the realm of the base and they do process a lot of like travel claims and so forth. And then there's the reconditioning side of the house, which is sick, ill and injured. So as a matter of fact, the transition for me moving into fitness coordinators happened since you and I uh, spoke originally, I was actually in the reconditioning manager role. And so in that role, I was overseeing sick, ill, injured for basically most of Southern Alberta and mainland BC. Uh, and now in the fitness coordinator role, it's uh, a more managerial supervising role. Uh, we do more of the strategic planning and the organizational pieces of it. Uh, so a big part of what I've been doing since I've been in that role has been doing uh, what we called our hearts and minds campaign. We've been going from uh, each brigade level and base level unit and speaking with their respective CO, DCO, OCs, all the people within their command structure uh, that are necessary to be involved in the conversation to basically start looking at what the next year look like uh, from a because we're a high readiness base for deployment. So what does the next year look like? How can we support you guys from a fitness perspective? Who all needs their annual fitness test so that they can back to deploy? Uh, those types of conversations. And then mm -hmm. aside from that, my specific role is I have a staff of nine um, that I oversee. And they're the ones that are actually boots on the ground, the sharp end of the stick, giving fitness plans and programs out to those units. Interesting, man. So with regards to the, the nine guys you're overseeing at the moment, are they very much just working within the unit or are you encompassing within that number of guys who are working in like the reconditioning element as well of that house? Yeah, so reconditioning is by definition its own separate department, although we do support them when needed because uh, there are very small operations. Quite literally, there's only two people in our location that oversee that entire AOR, the, that area. Okay. Um, and then they have a couple people that they can delegate to uh, across those areas. But, but for the most part, they're responsible for all the case file management there. So when they get bogged down with uh, injuries and things like that coming in and being referred, uh, we can delegate some folks across because we work um, very interchangeably as far as like our ability to deliver fitness and things like that. The catch is their scope of practice is a little different. So you're getting into the semantics of our organization, but uh, we can support them in that capacity. Our folks, um, as far as like kind of just generally uh, what they do is they function out of our basic facility. So we work out of the uh, Garrison Fitness Center, which is actually separate from the base side, mm -hmm. uh, but it is a military building, as weird as that is. Uh, anyhow, that being said, we're in a, I don't even know the square footage of it. It's a very large facility, multiple courts that we can uh, deliver unit PTs on, weight room, warrior room, which is like a tactical uh, or I'm sorry, TAC athlete is the term we use because we're not allowed to use the term CrossFit to my understanding. Anyway, it's a CrossFit room, basically. Uh, pool, racket, courts, the whole thing. Yeah. So we, we house in that location. 
but then we also have our fitness instructors, what we refer to as embedded within different units. So it's not necessarily a physically, uh, like geographically embedded approach. It's the idea that we have each of the instructors dedicated to a specific brigade or base level unit as a primary point of contact. And then they are also a two IC to another instructor for the continuity pieces because of the number of actual units on base comparatively to instructors. Some of them have multiple responsibilities within that. Um, but that's more the approach with how we take is that any of the requests for fitness classes, programming, rucking protocols, all that stuff, that is their primary point of contact. So their training officer is to contact them. Mm -hmm. and deliver that and then if they need assistance then we can subsequently do some plug and play where needed nice nice and how's that working for you then kevin from like a logistical standpoint obviously general broad strokes depend on what the unit needs from the yearly plan or whatever but how are you breaking down that say weekly training program for those guys coming in from a unit level so you know how often are you get them in the gym how often are you uh, developing their rocking sort of skill set as well yeah, so it becomes highly variable based on the type of unit, right? So one of the big things that we try to convey as being necessary for what we do from a fitness delivery standpoint is making sure that it is a specific uh, protocol for their MOSID. So what it like, so our, our field hospital folks versus our Patricia's versus our uh, Strathcona's, like their, their job requirements and their day-to-day -day are so vastly different. Uh, that we try to do our best to tailor make uh, those protocols, which can also shift the amount of days we see them in person, the times of days we see them in person. Some of them have, uh, we have kind of two different layers, or we, they have two different types of fitness tests predominantly that they have to fulfill based on the unit they're in. We have mm -hmm. the force evaluation, which is their standard fitness test that's universal across all CAF members. There's also what's referred to as a combat force test, which is basically derivative of that but it has a rucking component included in it. Typically the only people that are gonna see that are your big support groups. So like service battalion and our combat arms guys. Yeah. Um, there's other units that don't have that as a uh, required protocol and it's not universal across the calf. It's pretty much an army only uh, expectation. Um, but within those things, because those things are so vastly different, um, again, the, the way those roll out look very different. So uh, bigger units tend to get more attention. Uh, that's the equitable piece. It's not necessarily equal. Um, so to get more time and space just by virtue of how many numbers they actually provide us for uh, participating in classes and things like that. Uh, but as far as the actual delivery of fitness, um, we do our best uh, to have a very transparent communication with the units and what their battle rhythm looks like. Um, so for people that are, uh, we just had a conversation with like one field ambulance today, which is field hospital, medics, things like that. So the conversation we had with them today is that they're on high readiness for deployments. So as a result, they're doing lots of exercises and things like that to kind of dag everybody clear to get them ready for said deployments. So mm -hmm. the people that are actually on base is like the skeleton crew. So as a result of that, most of those folks that are actually present long enough to see through an entire progression are going to be administrative folks. So for them, their protocols are very much just general activity, keep them moving. If you were to have that same conversation in regards to like our Patricia's and spoke with our 
fitness instructors for the combat ready uh, or combat arms readiness groups, it's very performance driven, very stringent protocols for load carriage and weight training. And, and so it's, it's vastly, vastly different. So I know that's a very vague answer to that question. Um, but it really does, uh, it does vary significantly across the board. Um, I would say probably just generally speaking though, as far as what their weeks look like, uh, are kind of like cookie cutter. If I just close my eyes and threw a dart and it was going to land on a unit, we were going to give them something. They tend to do, uh, some element of strength training twice a week, some element of uh, cardiovascular training twice a week. And then they usually have some specialized training components. So if they're sedentary, they might do more mobility work. If they're combat arms, they'll probably be rucking that day. Yeah. That's interesting. And I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely because you're looking after such a, a large volume of individuals there on base, Kevin, and stand like, you know, it's, you've got to be quite diverse with regards to your approach there as well. One of the things wondering as well is, dealing with such a large number of individuals in big army there as well from your own training background. I don't know what your, your training philosophy is on your approach to like your strength work and your conditioning work as well. Then how much of that are you able to take from your own philosophy and start to implement within big army? Or is it like a, is it a slow process just because of the sheer size of it? I would say, you know, realistically, so it, it's interesting because you have the training philosophy question, like you'd sit yeah. me ahead of time and I was like, man, I don't know. I was like racking my brain all day. I was like, what is my training philosophy? Like, how do I su summarize that into something tangible? Mm -hmm. I would say most of my training philosophy stuff actually is completely separate of the physicality of it. It's more about the mentality that you take into your training, yeah. uh, which may not be unique to me, but that's just when I started really being analytical about it, that was more um, more my thought process was drifting towards how you mentally approach what you're doing in your training. Um, and I would say there's kind of two or three primary things. One, my old tagline that I used to use when I was doing per personal training, I was actually having to sell my services to folks. Um, I had a conversation with one of my, uh, former athletes, a guy named Matt Rice. And, uh, if you look at, um, if you look at Matt, like if you were to Google him, right, you're going to see lots of the ladies, police officer, he's, uh, you know, had a pretty illustrious career uh, growing up wrestling. I think he's in the state hall of fame for wrestling in Oklahoma uh, as a, in like prep school. And then he also fought in the UFC and he had fight of the night awards and things like that. Uh, but he also had a, a, a car wreck that nearly ended his life. And I think that actually happened to him in university as well. Um, so I say all that to say, this is that a lot of people would probably look at Matt and be like, man, that guy's been very fortunate, very lucky. And what I see is that Matt's just, never turned down a fight he's a very hard-nosed guy and uh so to kind of take all that and package it into this we had a conversation in uh the staging area at a uh, i don't remember what hotel or i'm sorry not hotel um casino we were in for a couple of his guys that were fighting so we're in the staging area guys are getting their hands taped and uh we just ended up in kind of a sidebar conversation and he hit me with uh uh a general phrase that I became my tagline because it resonated so deeply with me. And that was the only thing you can control in a fight is the shape you're in when you get there. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, thanks. I'm going to write that down. You know, like I'm gonna start selling t-shirts and stuff like that. But uh, that mindset is I think probably what enabled Matt to be that person at all those different stages is that he just very, a very basic concept understood that, 
you know, in, in any given situation, I can try to hyper specialize my, my scenarios. I can try to do all these things. I can, tr it's kind of the Mike Tyson, like everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth thing, right? It's like, you can hyper specialize everything as much as you want. But the reality is, is that there's only one thing that you can control and that's how prepared you are when you get there. So that's kind of indirect, but what it resonates to me is that I think a lot of times we have, particularly in the military space and things like that, we have a lot of people that think they've done enough or they've done good enough, but they kind of use that as a justification not to really put a lot of effort into it or mm -hmm. even more so is uh, you'll have people that are in non-combat arms uh, units and things like that. And they're like, well, I'm not infantry, so I don't really need that level of preparedness uh, or I don't need to be in that good of shape. And the reality is they may not be uh, in a space where that's necessary for them. And they may never encounter that, but it's, I would rather be over-prepared for the situation that doesn't happen than the inverse. Yeah. Kind of that. So that was kind of how I took that, uh, that general concept of what he had said to me. Uh, and then the other piece of that, or the other one that was really prevalent in my mind is that I would rather have someone do a mediocre program consistently than a phenomenal program occasionally. Uh, so those are, I would say probably my two biggest things is having a concept of like, you potentially may be put in a situation that is life or death. The only thing you can control in that, whether or not that situation happens or not, is not the situation itself, but whether or not you're prepared to encounter the situation. And then when it comes to being prepared, I want whatever you're going to be able to do consistently, not the perfect program. Yeah. And I think those two general concepts have been kind of my guiding light for how I approach programming for people, because there's lots of like amazing programs out there. But if that guy is not going to adhere to it more than two days out of the week, because it's too complicated, it takes too long. He doesn't have the, maybe it's, he doesn't have the equipment for it. So he doesn't know how to substitute things. So he just disregards the whole thing, whatever that looks like that's still not a good program for him. Yeah. And then keeping that in mind, if I'm not giving him the ability to do a program consistently that he can adhere to, then I'm prohibiting him from fulfilling that secondary piece, which is the being prepared for that situation if it arises. So I become the limiting factor. So I think those are really, for me, from a programming perspective or a training philosophy, those are really the two things that I kind of bounce back and forth between. Yeah. Definitely, man. I mean, that really resonates with me as well, Kevin. Like, just the adherence component is huge. And if you've got an athlete who just doesn't buy into it from any walk of life, it's like you may as well just be continuously struggling to fight your way uphill because it's not going to yeah. get the results you want. Even if you know in your heart and mind it's the best program you've written, you've really researched into it, they don't buy into it. So that's yeah. the point. And like I always say, keep it as simple as you can. I've had in the past with some athletes where have had coaches you know come down like right we're going to implement this training block and it's like sounds great but let's look at the bigger picture athlete attendance is poor so no matter how much you know we push this great program it's not going to get the results you want because the attendance is poor so let's work on picking up the attendance and then we can start to bring in the fancy stuff as well which is key yeah and i i can't recall the individual's name i started following him on social media i feel like i should know that but um i think he was a retired major in the army 
Uh, but he was in this most recent, uh, I think it was last year's TSAC conference. And he was just preaching on, I say preaching because the way he presented it, but he was just uh, presenting the more appropriate word uh, on, uh, you know, giving unit PTs to big art. And they were talking about numbers that were exceed well beyond what we would do, like 700 people in a single yeah. session, things like that. Um, but all that being said, he, uh, made a comment that stuck with me and I subsequently have adopted as my own, I've stolen it. Uh, and I, I use it when I actually go to these different units, which is, uh, the only metric that I actually track at my level is attendance because people mm -hmm. that show up get better. Yeah. And it's, it's such a simple concept, but it, it's so true though. Like when you think about it, it's like, I don't necessarily, for the vast majority of folks, I don't have to do anything necessarily revolutionary. I just need them to be there consistently. And it ties into that other concept. And so I think that partly has to do with why. I mean, it was kind of an echo chamber to things I already kind of believed. So it was a validity piece for me uh, to feel like I was kind of heading in the right direction, but it does make sense. And uh, so, yeah, that's a, a big piece of it for me is just, yeah, making sure that people show up. It's a matter of fact, with our initiatives that we're pushing for, that's what I'm tracking is whether or not people show up or not. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, definitely. And it, it's such a such an easy thing for us to track and it just gives you such a, a solid base to base everything else off of that as well. So if an athlete's not progressing or they're regressed or they have jumped on leaps and bounds, like, well, yeah, I can track that back because they've been attending or they haven't been attending sort of thing. It just gives you that little bit more of a background, like overview of what's going on with your program. Yeah. And like, I, I have a background with Westside. So I have my special strength certification. I worked with guys on the, the, uh, on the sports side of the house when uh, JJ Morris was running all strong and it was dedicated to baseball and stuff like that. So we were using Westside barbells interpretation of the conjugate method. And so I like my toys. I like bands, chains, and weight releasers and all the, yeah. you know, uh, I like all that stuff and I like it because it's all uh, foundation based. Uh, I'm sorry. The foundation is based rather on the physics that are applied in biomechanics. It's like, we're, we're looking at how these things alter our ability to mimic gravity and things like that, like pulling forces versus just, and so all those things. And like I said, I like to nerd out on that stuff. So it was very appealing to me. And uh, I know that we can get guys strong with that. The problem with it was from an implementation perspective, from a big army perspective, is that I don't have any of the equipment to be able to actually facilitate more than probably six or seven people. So yeah. I have to weigh in one hand, the six or seven people that I can make super strong, fast, agile athletes are they more important to me than the 600 people that I can treat with a sandbag, a kettlebell, and a little bit of extra space to do up downs and burpees and stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it becomes the you're you're weighing the hyper specialization and treatment of a few over the general preparedness of the many, and for us that is contrary to what our mission statement is. So I had to be willing to say this is really an optimal way to go about making these guys strong, but this is going to be optimal for maximizing from a force multiplier perspective, how many people I can get in just generally better shape. So, and that was a internal conflict that I struggled with a little bit because I want to do the fun stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. man. And I mean, before you jumped into this role, you're in currently as fitness coordinator, Kevin, you were the uh, reconditioning manager. 
how was yeah. that role obviously stepping in there and focusing very much on the rehabilitation side of guys coming back from injury and getting them back into unit for you yeah well that's and that side of it's vastly different mm -hmm. um i had a very different tagline that i would use yeah. to sell I, i've had I'm, in both respective roles just kind of as a side note i've had to do the sales pitchy thing to uh to both sides of our uh side of the house rather on the fitness side and the rehabilitative side to the unit. So I started keeping track of, oh yeah, that one really, it's like, like comedian writing jokes. It's like, yeah, that one really resonated. People seem to respond well to that one. Uh, the tagline I would use for that one is, uh, you won't build resilience through avoidance. That was a really common problem uh, that we had with uh, the military folks is that uh, they would go on uh, what was referred to, so medical chits, right? And so prolonged medical chits can turn into what's referred to as a TCAP, which is an acronym for temporary category, or I guess just abbreviation, not really an acronym. Uh, and then we have PCAP, which is a permanent category. And those, uh, those individuals tend to be people that are gonna be medically separated from the military. Uh, but TCAP just means that they've been on a medical chit basically longer than 30 days, consistent. <laughs> and uh, so what ends up happening is that because of their medical employment limitation or MELs, uh, that are handed to them at their, you know, whether it's their initial point of contact with medical or if it's on a subsequent visit that restricts their ability to participate in impacting uh, force evaluations, which is their fitness test. And, and you could just laundry list a, a whole slew of things. The mill that's intended to protect them basically from somebody at their unit forcing them to do those things in spite of their injury. Yeah because they don't really know how to navigate those things, what often happens is when everybody goes into formation and subsequently breaks out to do PT, they're just like, uh, go do something, right? And then there was little to no oversight with those individuals and you know, the kind of inside joke, I suppose, which is not an inside joke even, is that their PT would be, they would walk about a kilometer and a half to the South uh, because that's where Tim Hortons is. And then they would, eat donuts and then walk a kilometer and a half back. So that was their fitness program that day. Uh, but there was no oversight for it. And so, you know, in the reconditioning space, uh, our goal was to really start to see more of those people come through because we, we were getting reports that said there was like 500 people on our base on some sort of a shit. And our caseload was 80, 100 people. So where are all these people? Mm -hmm. And it was just because there was a disconnect there. So a big piece of actually working in the reconditioning space was for, for my tenure in that space rather was just educating the military on why it's important a and then secondarily to that is how do you get your people into our programs and so when i was in that space i probably did more of that than i actually did patient care because there was just a big disconnect at our base, which is not unique to our base, but it was glaringly obvious at our base that that was a problem. Yeah. And it's still something we're working on today. So uh, as far as the care of the, the soldiers themselves, um, it's a much more one-on-one -on -one process traditionally in the same light that we're trying to figure out how to be more of a force multiplier with our limited resources to the numbers of people on base on the fitness side we're doing the same thing in the reconditioning space right now. So we're trying to create more automated systems, prefabricated programs and things like that to widen that conveyor belt, to be able to facilitate working with more people. 
And uh, I guess the unfortunate reality is, is that when you do that with limited numbers in the same capacity of like, I can hyper-specialize these six or work with the 60, it's kind of the same thing. It kind of reduces our intimacy of care. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is we're getting more people in and out of the programs and back to regular duty. Um, so that's one of the things that they're, that's the fine balance of the reconditioning side is really navigating that space to, so that you're not doing a disservice to any one person because for them in those spaces, we on the fitness side, we're overseeing, you know, things that they should be doing on their own. And it doesn't really have any negative impact as long as they're able to meet standard for these individuals in the reconditioning space. If they're not able to remove their category, it potentially will end their career. Yeah. So there's a, there's a higher degree of, of expectation as to what the level of care is. And that is the fine line that they're having to kind of straddle right now when it comes to getting more people through the program so that those people are getting a service versus the intimacy of service that's been given to them traditionally. That's interesting, dude. I mean, it's interesting here, like just first of all, the challenge of getting people in through the door appropriately. So they're, you know, again, that condition and again, looked after so they can get returned to their units. How are you working then on the back end of that to get guys discharged out from the, the reconditioning side of things? Are you sitting down from like in meetings from a fitness and the medical side of things together, like uh, the CEOs of the units as well, and been like, right, this guy or girl is going to be robust enough to be back in X amount of weeks or so, and this is what that should look like? Or how, how's that working for you? Yeah, so we have, I'll give you kind of the, the 30,000 foot view of this so I don't lose you in the details on it because there's a, I could get really overly detailed and I tend to when I talk about this stuff. But um, basically from point of contact, so there's there's a couple different traditional ways that people are come to us. Well, I say that, let me rephrase that. There's one traditional way that people come to us and we've now opened it to being it more like a, a kind of a dual prong fork. Um, traditionally, only the, the medical side of the house uh, health services refers into our program. So physiotherapy, doctors, PCNs, things like that. Uh, so it was a medical referral that came across. They go through an initial intake phase. We do a triage with them based on the referral because we, uh, because we're civilians, we don't actually know what's on their medical file. We can't see it. Mm -hmm. uh, so then the weird part of that is that we are going through a subjective um, uh, reporting with them to, you know, basically validate what the referral says as to whether or not that's actually what they're telling us. So there's a little bit of subjectivity to that. Well, there's a lot of subjectivity to it, but hopefully we can clarify those things so that we can make the appropriate triage. We triage them into either a prefabricated program or we create a program for that individual. Once we've decided what that is, we have forms that go with that individual back to their chain of command that authorizes their participation. So in other words, if we said that they were going to be in a class, but it goes at, you know, zero nine, to 10 Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and their respective chain of command says, I can't give them up during that time. They can say no to the authorization for by reason of that. Now, if it's a justifiable reason, we'll adhere to it. If it's not, then it becomes kind of a, a push and pull between the medical side and them because there is an expectation if they're injured that they'll be able to uh, partake in care to rehabilitate their injury. Yeah. Um, but that authorization form goes to them. On that authorization form, the other thing that we can fill in is point of entry or start date into our program and projected end date. And so the reason that we do that is that they have to sign it as the military member themselves. We sign it as the practitioner 
and their chain of command signs it. And so what it does is it puts everybody in the know as to what the expectation is for this member, when they're gonna participate, what type of program they're participating in, and when you can expect them to at least be reevaluated depending on what their status is. And then for that reevaluation side of things, do you have like say like a you know a unique set of screening or testing procedures you got for the guys from the recondition, or do you go for more of the standard combat fitness testing route as well? And be like, right, okay, that's I'm good to go. Yep, for the for the general folks, the people that came in and twisted their ankle, things like that. Um, most of the time, the burden uh, of expectation for discharge criteria is just a uh, successful completion of their force evaluation, their fitness test. Uh, that's the vast majority of folks that actually come through our programs. Uh, we also get quite a few people that would be uh, our SLAM protocol, which is our uh, concussion protocol. Uh, they get graded exercise tests as, a, as an exit criteria. Um, our cardiac rehabilitation people, which is kind of few and far between in the, the absolute numbers, but we do get them. Uh, they do graded exercise tests as well. Um, and then we do have some other just kind of one-off clinical populations and things like that, where it's, uh, sometimes just subjective to the interpretation of, uh, the medical provider. They may say, Hey, we've done everything we can with this person. They're not going to get better. We're going to discharge them from our caseload sometimes in a limited capacity or whatever the case is. And then they're just kind of at the mercy of the system at that point as to what's going to happen with them moving forward. That doesn't happen a lot but it does happen. And then unfortunately the other one is non-compliance. So people that decide they just don't want to work with us for whatever reason. And then we have to report that they refused medical care. And so we try to do our best to limit that by virtue of like the authorization forms that says to the chain of command, like, Hey, they're participating in our programs. They should be here because we have to contact them as well. And basically <laughs> rattle them that they're like, hey, this guy's not showing up. And then yeah. that's a whole thing. Right. Um, we're trying to mitigate that as much as we can, but uh, those tend to be the kind of standard avenues that we see people exit the program. Okay. That's interesting to hear, dude. I mean, it's interesting to see, like you've already got the, the prefab protocols as well put in place there that you can run guys through. And that's nice to hear as well. And like you said, just come back to that simple piece of attendance. Is, is that guy attending or not? You know, and that's a huge thing. Um, one thing I just wanted to chat to you about as well, Kevin, is I know in the intro I said a little bit about outside you're also working within, you know, uh, the, the combat sports side of things and the grappling side of things as well. When, when did grappling come into your life, dude? Was that something early on in your life? Was that something you come into within the military? Because I know it's, it's, it's a big thing, especially from the jujitsu side of things, is really taken off within the tactical community. Yep. So I started early. Um, yeah, I... I think I mentioned earlier, I think I was nine. I was in the third grade when my family moved, but we moved into a new neighborhood. Uh, I had I'd done some traditional martial arts and stuff like that growing up, uh, like at the Y, like a weekend of karate, right? Like I did some stuff like that growing up. Um, and then uh, when we moved into the new neighborhood, my next door neighbors, uh, they had three boys and all three of them were like state regional level champions in wrestling and stuff like that. I really had no experience to it open backyards in the middle of Oklahoma. So I didn't really have a choice. I wrestled uh, whether I liked it or not. Uh, and then our parents uh, knew each other. Uh, and so uh, she actually, uh, their mother had offered to my mother for me to actually participate in wrestling practice with them. So I started getting uh, dragged along to those. They were a little bit older than me. So I kind of got to wrestle with them at that time. Uh, it was a couple of years before that I really started to go into the practices. Um, 
but I did that. And then I kind of just stuck with martial arts and or grappling uh, throughout the rest of my life. So uh, I'll be 38 this year to give you kind of an idea of timelines there. Um, when I went into the Marine Corps uh, out of high school, my roommate, we were kind of play fighting out in the uh, in one of the commons areas. He put me to sleep with a triangle. So uh, that w woke me up in, I guess, ironically to the idea of doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And uh, there's some other guys on base. We were in California, 29 Palms at the time. So we had guys going into, I think it's Los Angeles to train at Team Quest and they come back and they would give us their knowledge. Basically they beat us up and we'd learn by pain. Um, so did that. And then once I moved back to Oklahoma City after my time in the Marine Corps, uh, I started training uh, with uh, fellow uh, friends from the gym that were already going to Lovato's Jiu-Jitsu. So Lovato Jr. that's a pretty mm -hmm. esteemed uh, Jiu-Jitsu fighter in the U.S. So he was right right around the corner. He actually went to the rival high school that I went to growing up. Um, so he was right around the corner for me. So uh, I trained there for quite a bit of time and then kind of delved off into uh, USA Stars, which is a judo school and more. Met some other guys there. Uh, started doing MMA with guys. We went to R1, which was Grice's place that I mentioned earlier. Uh, There's a handful of guys that were fighting Strike Force, Bellator, UFC at the time that were all in that facility. Um, so yeah, I've kind of been all over the place. Uh, with all that stuff uh, as time went on. And then my most recent time prior to being here, uh, when I was in Oklahoma City, quite a few of the guys are police officers. So uh, they would train at the police training center, which is actually where the academy is. They'd roll out mats on the uh, basketball floor. Or we'd meet up. There's 10 or 12 of us. I think I was purple belt at the time and everybody else is black belt. So I'm just getting my teeth knocked in constantly mm -hmm. for an hour, but it was great. Um, and then... Uh, since I've been here, I've actually helped with some of the grappling initiatives within the CAF. Uh, I've made connections with uh, one individual, particular is, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Burgess out in Petawawa. And uh, he's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Marcus Soares. And then he also has a black belt in Judo. And then he used to do the old like point fighting karate stuff. He like traveled to, I called him Karate Kid because he's gone to Japan and fought everything. Uh, but he has been kind of the tip of the spear for grappling initiatives uh, within the CAF. And then uh, I've worked very collaboratively with him on those things. Uh, and so um, now I kind of in a roundabout way train under him from a practitioner perspective, but train alongside him when it comes to our uh, initiatives and pushing, you know, more of the grappling sport in the CAF as a whole. Nice, nice dude. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's taken off massively, I'd say within title space, like I, I'm, humble enough to share the mat with a number of guys who are in law enforcement within the fire service and some in the military as well, which is really interesting to see. Um, I know you're also part of the NSA's special interest group as well within combat sports. How did that come about, dude? And how are you finding, you know, taking in more of the science side of things into combat sports? Because obviously we know combat athletes are just like, yeah, yeah, cool. Science is great and all, but I'm just going to go 100 miles an hour at this brick wall and I'll be fine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it was, uh, not that interesting of a story to be honest. Uh, it was, uh, I had gone to a couple of little conferences that were combat sport related, uh, that didn't exist within NSCA's, uh, peer review. So it was, uh, I, I don't even remember which organizations, right. But anyway, there's private organizations, things like that. And it was just more, I wanted to learn more about what was going on out there. And, and some of the information was kind of generalized. And I, I feel like people are still kind of being very like, possessive of some of their secret sauce of information that they possess. Um, but all that being said, uh, it became glaringly uh, evident to me that there seems to be kind of a lack of 
of community and uh, within the, the strength and conditioning space for combat sports, even though there's an immense amount of people that are engaged in it at this point, because it, it's not a standardized uh, uh, process of like working your way through the ranks and strength and conditioning like you'd see in more traditional sports like baseball and football, track and field and things like that. Uh, because there's just pockets of gyms everywhere. And usually the person doing the strength and conditioning for that facility is also just the sport coach. And so right. it's usually one of the most senior level guys in the facility. He's been through the ranks. He's cut weight before. So he's the one that basically dictates what all the fitness looks like, all the, the nutrition looks like. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, you know, it, I kind of co-founded it, so to speak, with um, with Duncan. We just kind of co-applied at the same time, and they were like, "Yeah, you guys work together." Um, but like Duncan, being uh, the head of the UFCPI or vice president of UFCPI, I think I just promoted him. Um, anyhow, that being said, like they have just an immense amount of technology to their uh, fingertips. As a Bo Sandoval is one of their, uh, I think he's the lead strength and conditioning coach. I chat with him periodically, just kind of offline, not necessarily about strength and conditioning, but just periodically. But I mean, like the, the amount of like technology they're bringing into the sport and things like that. And then uh, it, it was just the, the idea that like, there are people out there in this space that are doing really, really innovative, uh, creative, scientifically significant things why are we not communicating with each other to form best practices and stuff like that so that was really my drive to do that so all i did was i looked and nope no special interest group for combat sports so i reached out to the individual that oversees i can't i think it was susan barkley um reached out to the individual and just said hey what's this look like what does it take what's the process and uh, at the time she basically said We've got a couple other people that have already asked about that. Let me link you guys up and see if you guys can come to kind of a consensus as to who's going to fit into what shoes and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's a few of us talking and basically we were all like, uh, Duncan should be the head guy. Like <laughs> my name doesn't mean anything in this community, his name, but Duncan writes all the textbooks that we're reading. So maybe yeah. he should be the main guy. on. So, and then I've just been, uh, I, I took the role as committee secretary. So a lot of what I do for him is, uh, once we've been doing kind of the legwork stuff, some of the brainstorming stuff, I, I do a lot of putting it on paper and things like that. And so we do collaborative discussions and things like that. And uh, just because even as busy as I am, he's busier than I am. Uh, so I uh, do my best to kind of, to fill the, the voids and in, in being able to get those things actioned and things like that for the organization. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear, dude. And I'm looking forward to see where that goes forward as well and just trying to bring that collaborative element as you say with regards to sharing best practice and information throughout combat sports will be huge yeah yeah and that's our hope you know like the other thing too is uh you know there's lots of guys that have been like kind of the ogs of the the strength and conditioning world for for um combat sports and they just they've watched the the crazy evolution that is strength and conditioning for combat sports and so they bring a wealth of experience and then we have a lot of people now with the prevalence of combat sports that are coming into it that are relatively green but they have a lot of uh academia to their name and uh so it's been a nice uh forum to start seeing those connections being had with people that have very you know intimate understandings of like the old days of guys like taking epi shots in the back on their way out to jack them up because they're getting ready to go into a bare knuckle fight with no weight classes 
at, to the guys today that are like, every time they go in and train, they're getting body temperatures taken and doing dynamometer hand grip tests to make sure their CNS isn't too fatigued. And they're getting tracked in bod pods and all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, we just sweated out the sauna and wear ourselves. You know, like, so it's <laughs> the, the crazy vast differences between those two uh, and then everything in between. And so uh, that was our aim was that we would see again is to start to see those things start to mesh together and form best practices. And so far it seems like it's doing uh, quite well organically in spite of how busy Duncan and I are at any given mm -hmm. day. Man, no, well, I say it's cool to see dude. And I'm looking forward to see how it continues to grow and progress from there as well, mate. So yeah, thanks yeah. a lot for getting that going with Duncan did. One, one of the, the positives of this podcast as well, Kevin, is, you know, I get to have conversations with people who are infinitely smarter than me, and I'm always keen to find out what they're engaging in for their own education and development. Sure. So it's always the same question I want to know, dude, is like, could you recommend a, a book, an app, or a website you personally find useful for your own education or development? Man, uh, <laughs> i to think of what I have sitting around here. You know, really, I would say um, for me, for me, a lot more of where I've spent my time, like the last year and a half, like the stuff that you've seen me posting, last year and a half, I've spent an immense amount of time diving into uh, behavioral change and leadership. Um, I would say, you know, like there's, I have dozens of textbooks that are strength and conditioning based um, that are great. But, uh, you know, until you're able to get somebody, uh, on board with behavioral change and habitual changes and things like that. Uh, it's all kind of superfluous to the equation. It goes back to the concept we talked about. The best program doesn't matter if they don't adhere to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say realistically, probably the most impactful uh, book that I've read lately is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, that book is just so saturated with good information, some relatively intuitive, some not so intuitive. Um, I think he actually has a Kinesis background, interestingly enough. Um, but it's just the, the information is very clear to understand. So it's not, uh, I've had some other books that I've started into and I'm like, I can't, like I don't have the, the, the bandwidth to process the, the depth of uh, the psychology that they're getting into. I don't have the background, but that one is very, very clear. It's very mm -hmm. practical. And it's quite literally got something that you can use tangibly about building good habits and behavioral change from like the moment you open it to the time that you close it. So that's been, I've read through it twice now. Uh, that's, a, that's a solid recommendation, dude. You're not the first and it's, it's definitely on my Amazon uh, purchase list at the moment, dude. So I'll definitely check that out, mate. Um, yeah. obviously Kevin it's been awesome chatting to you dude and you know it's been good to get insight into your work that you're doing over there in Canada and just to pick your brain a little bit for anyone who's listening here who you know may have some questions wants to reach out themselves you know what's the best way they can do that to you Kevin uh, yeah so I don't really I don't really market or do anything with social media outstanding anymore uh, my uh, primary source of social media at this point is just LinkedIn uh, which I always kind of feel embarrassed saying I was like I always viewed it as like you know my older brothers and my dad you know but now I'm on it so that's you know so be it uh but that is probably you know like if uh if you wanted to reach out to me I have uh you know I get inquiries on that kind of sporadically already um so I'm pretty 
in touch with uh, keeping up with it regularly enough that if you were to message me, you're not going to have to wait weeks on end uh, to find me. So that would be really the only source. The other ones I have, like my Facebook and stuff like that, I, I don't think I've even logged onto it in the last like six weeks. So <laughs> you're not going to get a real prompt response out of me. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Okay, cool. I'll make sure I link that into our, uh, our show notes as well, dude. Uh, so sure. that's no problem. Honestly, Kevin, once again, mate, you know, thank you so much. I know you're a busy dude. You got a lot going on, dude. So thank you for being so gracious with your time. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, anytime you want to talk in the future, just let me know. Appreciate that, Kevin. Thank you, mate. Okay, guys. So that's another week's episode done and dusted. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it gave you some new information or made you think a little bit more deeper into some of your practice or into different topics. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. Um, it really means a lot to us guys and really helps bump up the podcast within the, the rating scales as well. And once again, please make sure you pass this on to your colleagues, your friends who are in the performance space as well and just help get this message out. All right, guys, take care. See you next week.